water rush over Like a wave wash this weight off my shoulders Take me back to the days when I was younger and free From this past that follows me told you I was an innocent man Never lied, never tried To deceive you about who I am Cause all I wanted Was your love and your laughter And your ever after But when I look into your eyes I see the man I'm supposed to be Staring right back at me There's a look on his face It's a look I can't erase From my mind Cause I'm afraid of what you'll find Well I can hear the thunder rumble In the distance How far behind me, I don't know, but if it finds me, all the love I've known might crumble in an instant. So I keep on running faster and faster, trying to chase my ever after. But when I look into your eyes, I see the man I'm supposed to be. And he's staring right back at me, there's a look on his face. It's a look I can't erase from my mind Cause the skeletons that I keep inside Girl, I'm afraid of what you'll find If you wait patiently The more of me you know The more the skeletons will show So I walk carefully Living from day to day Pray you'll stay And now after the years Have flown away You're still by my side And I, I still have so much to say I just never knew I've never felt this way before Can you really love me? Forevermore Forevermore Love forevermore The cool water rush over me Take away these fears And wash away my insecurities I wanna run, I wanna find you next to me Where the little things in life will never bother me They'll never bother me No, they'll never bother me
Welcome to this week's edition of the Wisp Me Mob Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd, middle initial C. Walker. Yes, that's right, it's me. And we have been listening to the title track from the CD Cool Water, and that's the title of the song and the CD, by a gentleman I have not seen in person for about 15 years. And he and I shared the stage many times in the Frederick, Maryland area. And then he just kind of disappeared, or I disappeared, or we both disappeared. But right now, he's back, and he's on the phone with me right now, Mr. Mark Austin. How are you? I'm doing great, Todd. Thanks. You know, I don't know what happened and why we got kind of separated there. But uh, so what's been going on with you for the last 15 years? Oh, goodness. Well, you know, I think the last time we saw each other was shortly after my son Colt was born. Mm Mm-hmm. We may have played, uh, you know, venue, one of my uh, venues that I was hosting um, here in Alexandria, Virginia. And uh, I recall putting out the tip jar and, and that was called the diaper fund. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do remember. <laughs> do you remember that? <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, that, that, that boy is now no longer in diapers. He's a, a freshman in high school and plays the uh, bass clarinet in marching band here at Alexandria City High School formerly known as T.C. Williams. They've changed the name. Um, but so that was, you know, that was, uh, I, I sort of did my best to keep my uh, passion of music and songwriting going. And then it just, uh, it just became too much being a father and trying to get my career, you know, going and balance. And it was the balancing. It just had, I had a hard time trying to figure out how to, how to do that. And so, while I have left, you know, I had left the performing scene um, soon after that. I think the last gig I had was a good 13 years ago or so. Um, but uh, while I haven't been playing out, I've certainly been playing a lot in uh, in my in my uh, home studio or my my uh, closet, whatever you want to say. Um, the calluses for my uh, guitar hands still exist. My fingernails are still there. My voice is a little bit rusty as I haven't really uh, trained it to sing that, you know, the number of songs. But, you know, it's been uh, being a father, trying to figure out my career. I work, as you may remember, I work in the field of international uh, global health. Um, I work for the federal government and and, uh, we are completely busy. And one of the things that is keeping me pretty uh, busy right now is clearly the Ukraine crisis where working on trying to solve some of the health-related issues for the people in Ukraine and the surrounding countries. But um, so that's a big piece of it. I've been, um, I have also during that same time rekindled my love for cycling. Um, I am a, uh, I'm on a local team here and uh, compete in um, road cycling. And that's been a, a fun way to kind of get my, um, get back in shape um, after so many years of not doing uh, much exercising. But so I'm trying to balance my career, my family, my music and, and uh, my health and my passion for cycling and everything. And that's sort of where we are. And then you called me out of the blue and or sent me an email uh, last month. And I was so glad you did, because the more I've been um, playing and just, you know, Thinking about um, my time as a performing musician, I often wondered, 
I wonder where some of these people are. I wonder where Todd is. <laughs> literally that literally that morning, I was that was that crossed my mind, and then you sent that email. So clearly, the uh, the powers that be up in up in the sky were uh, communicating something to you. So appreciate that very much. Well, and and I appreciate the fact that you responded and that you have agreed to be on the podcast. The, as I mentioned in the intro, you and I used to perform together quite often. And part of the, there were two reasons. One was in those beginning years of performing and trying to do all my own originals. I didn't have enough to cover two hours. So I would invite people who I really liked uh, to join me on stage. And you and I probably did eight or 10 shows like that, maybe more. I don't remember. Yeah, well, then I did come down. Least, yeah. yeah. And then I did come down to Cameron Perks. Um, one time for the show where we split it. And then I think I came down for one or two of the open mics that you were hosting. Mm -hmm. And then for a while, didn't you do workshops for SAW, Songwriters Association of Washington? Yes, I did. I did, um, one or two. I I remember one in particular, um, but yes, that was, that was a lot of fun. Um, did it, I think the, uh, I want to say it's like the Elevation Church or something, uh, here in Alexandria, Mm -hmm. um, it was a great workshop. I really enjoyed it. Well, and we're going to play a song at some point in this this next hour that you sent me last week. Hmm. And it's uh, Patty McFarland. And that's a yeah. relatively new song. Is, am I correct? Relatively, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, that song, um, I have, that song was co-written with a friend of a friend of mine. Um and uh, it's a gentleman that a good friend, a good friend of my youth who, um, you know, I grew up in Idaho and Northwest. And this uh, woman that, or this girl at the time that I was our neighbor, she, she had an uncle that uh, she wanted to put me in touch with. He was a lyric writer and a poet and spends a lot of time in, um, in Ireland. That's kind of his favorite uh, place. And I think he has some ancestry there. And he's written, um, we together have written a couple of tunes, um, both sort of that uh, traditional Celtic flavor. Um, And so that was co-written. He wrote the lyrics, uh, tweaked them a little bit, and wrote the music to it and performed it. Well, it's a terrific song, and it reminds me of the song, which is on Cool Water, Jacques Mathurne. Ah. (laughs) And uh, I don't know if we'll have time to play that one as well. Um, what I love about that song, other than the fact that you always, when you sing, you have a very, I can't say it's a unique voice, but it is unique in it's that, uh, it is a unique voice, but it's not, it's not a road worn gravelly voice like some, um, some folks have it's it, but it's got this, uh, when I listen to your songs, cool water, and then coal alley, the, those are movie soundtrack songs for me in my head. I can, you know, I listen to them and I immediately see the, either the credits at the end of the movie or the beginning with the, you know, the, the drone shots in today's world where they used to use helicopters, you know, with the expansive landscape with the mountains mm-hmm. and things like that, because you just have a very, well, not, I was going to say cool sound for, and then cool water, but that didn't, <laughs> <laughs> I apologize for that one, but you obviously have a good enough vocal that uh, Janice Ian asked you to open for her in a, a, a concert tour she did at the Mid-Atlantic. And gosh, that must have been 18 years ago, I'm guessing. Uh, close to. I think it was uh, 2000. 
think it was the spring of 2005. Mm-hmm. I think that, that was, you know. Well, explain to me, make, what you're doing is explaining to the people who are listening, sure. is how you got to do that. Oh, goodness. You know, I have to preface that by saying um, one of the, one of the uh, reasons I've been thinking a lot about performing and really missing the stage is um, Janice is actually playing at the Birchmere again uh, next weekend. And um, uh, my, I'm going to be taking my, um, my wife and son to that show. So I'm really excited to, to do that and introduce Janice to my 15 year old. <laughs> we, um, in the, in the, this was, you know, I, in 2000, my son was born in 2007. So in 2005, he was merely a twinkle in our eye at the time. But uh, we jo- I joked with uh, Janice and I said, regardless of whether it's a boy, we're going to name him after you. It'll be Jan- either Janice Austin or Ian Austin. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, so the, I guess the story goes back um, much further. My father, who is an audiophile, he loves window shopping for um, high-end uh, stereo equipment. And I remember um, visiting one of these uh, one of these stores and going into this listening room and hearing a you know hundred thousand dollar stereo system, right? And what did they play? They played a, uh, a CD from the ni- early '90s from Genesee, and I can't recall the name of that one. It's a black cover, and it just absolutely blew me away. And um, it's kind of like that old Memorex ad where the guy's sitting in front of the stereo and he's just sort of just blown his hair back the the power the vocals the clarity the the passion i just fell in love with it and then sort of discovered for my first time this grammy award-winning um you know singer songwriter um who as as you know and many who are listening you know wrote her first you know billboard hit when she was you know like 13 um and uh, i think uh, close to it um, her and her songs at 17 and then society's child um, were huge hits but she's I've always been listening to her ever since that time um, really just started learning her some of her tunes and uh, just really appreciating her music and then um, my wife and I when we were newlyweds had an opportunity to to watch her to watch her perform at the Birchmere and this is when I was starting to play here I I had spent I had become a uh, performing artist when I was up uh, doing my graduate work in Boston. So I'd had a few years under my feet of, of spending time on stage and, you know, kept writing a catalog of my own music. And, and we went to hear her and there was a young woman who opened for her that night. And, and, uh, you know, I just thought I, after that show, I thought, you know, I'm just as good as she is. <laughs> I could, you know, I could do that. I could totally do that. And so, out of the blue, after that night, I I had just completed, I think, um, recording my CD. And I you know, had all these boxes of CDs in my that I house that I was trying to sell. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to see if I can contact Janice Ian and see if she'd be willing to even first just listen to my CD. I thought it would be a great opportunity to hear, you know, an, an in, huge influence of mine to be able to listen to it and comment and just provide some thoughts, maybe a nice little quote or something. But um, so I sent her an email and I also introduced the idea. I said, Hey, look, my, you know, I saw you at the Birchmere this this last month and I would love for you to listen to my music and, you know, maybe even (laughs) perform with you some other, sometime in the future. 
at the time she 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 got back to me within 24 hours now one of the things about her is she's extremely approachable she's been sort of a vanguard of the modern streaming music scene she got a lot of flack in the um late 90s and early 2000s for um not you know being or i guess supporting this idea of napster and file sharing and music streaming and all this stuff she was all she was of the opinion hey more exposure is better and uh but she's always sort of been a vanguard and, and also very approachable and on her website not not uh, totally out in the front but look at when i looked deeply i saw that hey here's her direct email and she does communicate uh, with her with her fans and so i sent her an email she got back to me she was on tour in australia at the time she said look i can't do anything right now but send copy of your cd to my uh um my agent here and uh, i'll give it a listen and a month later i just followed up with a quick a short email and said so you know you listen to it, what do you think so i loved it do you want to play with perform with me <laughs> i'm touring <laughs> touring in a couple you know next year and i would love to have you uh, um as a special guest and i'm like oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> i was absolutely blown you know number one this was um, this was first and foremost, uh, you know, a great response from someone who whom I had admired for you know well over a decade now, and uh, was appreciative of my music, and so that was a huge validation and just a really neat um, uh, neat experience there. And then, secondly, to be able to play at the Birchmere, and then and also at the Ramshead Tavern and a few other venues with her during that the mid-Atlantic stage of her tour. Absolute dreams come true. Those are things that I will never in my life forget, playing out to sold, playing there to sold-out shows with her fan base, my fan base, and just the energy was incredible. And Janice is such an amazing you know, person. Um, you know, my, my parents would cut, my parents flew out to hear me play at the Birchmere. They knew my dad was a huge Janisian fan. So, and just the, the approachability was, and the genuineness was an amazing experience. And I know that, you know, some of my other saw colleagues have had, you know, in, incredible opportunities, you know, with their songwriting to perform with, you know, huge artists and, and they can't all say the same about, you know, that I can about my experience, uh, the beer, just the chats that we had and the kindness and the support and uh, just back in the green room before the shows and, and a little bit of you know, professional advice. And, and uh, it was just amazing. So that's certainly a highlight of, of my life and my certainly my career as a, as a singer songwriter. Well, I think the, uh, the album that you referred to, the the, the black one, it was called "Breaking Silence" from 1993. That's it. That's it. Yep. yep. I've been Thank I've you. been whittling away on my computer while we were okay. chatting. <laughs> but I, I remember an incredible album. Yeah, I remember because one of the the stops on her tour was here in Frederick at the Kuzmal Theater at the Frederick Community College, yes. and I did attend. And you came out obviously as the opener. And I had heard you many, many times. Um, you and I both used Bose L1 uh, PA systems, which sound great. Um, I've always loved your sound. But you came out, and I think you brought, I think there were two guitars. I think, I think you had two guitars on stage, which you know, came out with one, one was already there. But 
I was expecting you to be good, but with the sound, whoever did sound and audio that night, it was just, it blew me out of my seat. It was just like, oh my gosh. And then to have her come out afterwards, and she's so low-key kind of in a conversational way um, and puts the audience at ease. That was a wonderful concert, so. Yeah. Now, and that was, I think that was the, uh, I think that was the second stop. I think we performed at Ramshead was the first night, and then Frederick. That, that was just, it was a whirlwind, but boy, it was fun, and, and uh you're right. She is. She's very um, uh, calm and, and approachable on stage, and just very fluid. Um, you know, she's she certainly is a is a performer's performer. Well, now, and you know, she's also been one of those. Sorry, she's also been, you know, one of those uh, women touted as um, a guitarist's guitarist. Yes. You know, there's and she is her her chops. <laughs> she's a guitarist. She's an incredible musician. Not only can she sing and song and write incredible songs and powerful songs, she can play, you know, she's up there with the, the Bonnie rates and, and, and uh, Annie DeFranco's that just are real powerhouses on the guitar. I mean, you could actually tell that I did. I have seen numerous times YouTubes of her performing society's child when she was a, basically a kid. Yeah, and you can tell that she knows how to move around the fretboard very, very well. Yeah. Speaking of move, moving around the fretboard, you do a fair job yourself. <laughs> Thank you. Now, the um, when did you first pick up the guitar? Uh, that's a story that goes back to 1981. Um, it was I, you know, I grew up in. I have uh, an older brother and two younger sisters, and my mother was, you know, musical. My father played a trombone in, in, uh, in high school band and he'd pull it out for his high school reunions. And <laughs> I remember that, but you know, we, um, my older brother had, was, um, taking piano lessons or being pushed through piano lessons at that age. He was two years, my senior. So he was 13 at the time. And I just remember a lot of tantrums on the, on the <laughs> piano in the afternoon. I don't want to practice. Well, mom had put me into in piano lessons as well with one of the you know local girl or you know just down the road, and I did not like it. I just had no interest in it. And I don't know if there was again if it was one of those um, you know backdoor commun back channel communication. Or if it was just someone in tune with the, you know the man upstairs, my grandmother. We went to spend Christmas that year with my grandmother in in Bend, Oregon, where my mom grew up. Beautiful place, by the way. Um, and we went out there, and I was given a, a a guitar for Christmas from Grandma. And like I said, I don't know if to this day I'm I don't know if she was sort of privy to my frustration with the piano because my grandma played the piano in Oregon and she loved it. And she was very musical. She loved to sing. And so whether or not she gave me a guitar, it was an old, it was a, I remember it was a con um, classical nylon string and I had no idea what to do with it, but boy, it was cool. <laughs> and and that was that was my first foray. I, you know, my mother put me into classical guitar lessons for a couple of years. I know, I swear, I hardly ever practiced. Um, 
but I did learn how to read music. I did learn how to, you know, play, uh, you know, classical music and how, and also, and then I soon started taking sort of sing-along lessons from uh, a lady down the street. I did that for, you know, a couple of years, two or three years, and then just got bored. You know, I was, I was playing little league baseball and, and on the all-star team and that's what I was going to do. Right. I, I just wasn't in music. So the guitar went in its case and under my bed. And then my senior year in high school, and I remember this, and I've probably told this story before, but um, I was uh, listening to some of my favorite bands from the 80s of the you know early alternative new wave, and I was listening to a tune by Echo and the Bunnymen. And there was a little solo there, um, and I can't remember the name of the song, but I can hear that solo. And it was just a very simple guitar solo. It was in the key of D. I thought, yeah, I could, I could learn that. And so I picked up the guitar, pulled it out from under my bed, and started listening to that song and, and getting that lick down and then playing the background music and then learning other songs and starting to play some of the tunes you know, that I was interested in. And, and that was all. That was, that was it. I was, you know, I was back into guitar and really enjoying it. And then where the momentum kicked in after that, I was uh, in college and I took a, um, a guitar, I took guitar lessons from the professor there and it was electric guitar. And that was the year he just opened up the fretboard for me that year, even though, you know, it was electric guitar and I was just learning, I was learning some Georgia satellites and, and, uh, um, and uh, just, you know, Van Halen, all sorts of stuff. And it was just really fun. And it, and like I said, it opened up the, the fretboard for me. And then ever since then, I just started writing and playing around um, with different tunes, what I call just sort of noodling or drooling. I just sit down with my guitar in my lap and watch TV and I'll just mess around with my fingers and listen to what comes out and nowadays it's so much easier so i'll just turn on my iphone if i hear something and uh, i'll just play you know record a short video of me doing it so i don't forget it um but uh, to this day i still you know so grateful for my grandma who gave me that guitar i i'm still kicking myself for not keeping it i sold it sometime when i was in college to try and buy another guitar <laughs> Since then, I've acquired a few, not not quite as many as you, <laughs> but um, yeah. So that was that was the beginning, and and now I find myself that I've been since I've been not performing as much. I've been trying to go back. You know, I've always called myself more a guitarist, not so much a musician. And the only reason it's just semantics. But for me, I can play the guitar, um, but I've never really been what i call a, a, a well-educated or a, a musician that is can sit down and jam and know various keys and know the chords the crazy chords that i play and so i've been trying to do that over the last few years i've taken up um, learning jazz and so i've had a lot of fun um playing arch top guitars now um just as, and i still have my flat tops and love them and uh play a lot and write a lot but uh so that's, you know, that's kind of the story of or the evolution of, of my guitar, my guitar work over the years. But. Well, many of the guitarists who are um, listening will want to know 
after that con nylon string, I think you <laughs> mentioned you got an electric, right? Yes. And what was the, was that like a, a like a fender or something like that? Or Oh, it wasn't even that nice. No, it was a, it was a Ibanez Roadstar. Oh, I remember was, those. Yeah. You remember those? Yep. It was, it, uh, I remember it was a red body with a black pickup or a black pit guard. And, uh, and I was, <laughs> I had a little gorilla, you know, very cheap, awful sounding gorilla amp. It was probably about an eight inch speaker. And I would be in the dorms and everyone on the floor knew, knew me as the blues man. <laughs> <laughs> I had learned, I had just learned to play um, catfish blues um, by um, Hendrix. And I remember, you know, people would come by and hey, blues man. And here's this, the funny thing is, so I, I grew up in Idaho and went to school in Utah. And, and I remember the crowning moment of my semester of lessons you know, the guy was, he was, the professor was from New Orleans, uh, you know, white, white guy from New Orleans, but great musician. And I remember, you know, the, at the beginning of the semester, he had given me something to work on. I think it was, I don't, I don't remember what it was. It was a, it was some sort of blues lick. And I practiced that and practiced that and practiced that. I was so into this. And I came back to, I came back to the, uh, to my lesson the next week. And he's like, okay, let's hear it. And so I get out there, I'm like, okay. And I start playing this lick. And he goes, in his New Orleans drawl, he's like, you know, Mark, I can tell you've been really working on that, but you just sound like a white boy from Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the most crushing thing. But, you know, at the end of the year, the end of that semester, he gave me Catfish Blues. And I started playing that. And then he joined in playing some backup. And pardon me for that. He said, you're black, man. You got the feel. (laughs) (laughs) Those were his words. And and that just, you know, that just gave me the shot in the arm I needed. That was great. So that was my, that Fender or that, sorry, that Ibanez was my um, guitar. And then I bought, ended up buying a a Yamaha um, flat top acoustic electric. And I had that one for years. And my first foray into kind of nice guitars, I saved up uh, for a Loudon, a custom Loudon guitar from Ireland. And, and that was my first really nice guitar. And I was just blown away by that thing. Of course, I don't have that one anymore. <laughs> but uh, that cycled through. I've owned probably over 100 guitars over the years, just kind of coming through my, my home and, playing them for a few years and selling. But I do have some of my, my oldest guitars that are still with me and I'm not getting rid of. Or, I've had them for 10, 15 years now. So what, what guitars, acoustics, do you still have? So I have my Kevin Ryan, mm-hmm. um, which is my, you know, my favorite. I actually, the one that you knew that I used to perform with, I sold that one and uh, purchased a new one, uh, a newer, well, a newer one. Uh, with some of the appointments that I wanted. I, I wanted something with a little uh, more, I wanted something with an Adirondack top, something a little bit with more headroom. So mm-hmm. I ended up getting one of that. Um, one of my favorite guitars uh, that I've really been having fun with over the last few years is my baritone. Um, it's made by a Nashville luthier, uh, Tony Vines. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had that one for about, oh, oh, 15 years now. And I love that. And I've just been having more and more fun on it. 
Um, those are my two uh, flat tops that I have. And then I have a semi-hollow, a laminate arch top, and then a fully carved arch top, 17-inch. All from a gentleman up in Philly. His name's Bill Cummins. Oh, yes. He makes, yep. he makes some absolutely – I mean, his the carved uh, jazz – uh, guitar that I have is just gorgeous, but he's been uh, doing what some, you know, renowned luthiers are starting to do to allow people to, with more modest budgets, <laughs> to access their um, work. And so he's been, he's one of those uh, luthiers who has designed some guitars that are not, that are being built in Asia mm-hmm. and shipped over here. And then he sets them up and, uh, and I'll tell you, those these two guitars that are very reasonably priced, you know, we're talking, you know, between one and twenty five hundred dollars, which is extremely reasonable these days. Um, and especially for this the, the the work and quality. And so I just, you know, they have the playability of his of his guitars are just amazing. So yeah, I've got three of his and then my uh, two flat tops, and I just acquired um, that I'm waiting for is a Mark Blanchard. It's a used guitar. Mark is a Montana luthier. I used to own one of his guitars about 10 years ago and ended up selling it. And that's been one of the biggest regrets in my life. <laughs> so I found, finally found one that was all, that was the twin, uh, the, the woodwork shop or the wood shop twin of the one that I had. And, uh, so I finally tracked that down and, well, is can't it, wait for it to arrive. <laughs> it, isn't he one of the uh, first luthiers that started doing double tops? I do not know. I don't know. It's a good question. I, I what may he have, is doing. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I may have the wrong fellow, but his name just popped up, and that's why I thought of it. What were you going to say? Oh, he's, he, what he does um, is two things that I really enjoy. I'm, he uses the Linda Manser's wedge-shaped yeah. body, which is really comfortable, and it really focuses the the trebles and the bass sound. I, I really like how it does that. But he and so this guitar that I uh, purchased it, uh, has the wedge body to it. Um, but I'll tell you what he is able to get out of his treble strings. I've never heard in any other guitar. I can't say anything up, but the, the word that people use is fat. They're just absolutely, um, they cut through the mix. They're not too sparkly. They're not too dark. They're rich and they have power behind them. And I've never heard guitars, um, never heard any other guitar that I've ever played um, achieves that. And it's something I, that I love. The balance is incredible and everything that you would expect from a great guitar. But the treble strings are just so amazing on those. So. I- I, you know, I was thinking. I'm when, a little bit. I'm geeking out here. <laughs> oh no, no, that, that's fine for me. I, I was thinking when you mentioned it, I'm thinking double tops, and and then I was thinking something had to do with trees. But he names his acoustics: seedling, yes. pinion, juniper, sugar bristle pine, cone. bristle cone. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Now, now, which one are you getting? I have the tamarack. Okay, that was the the next one on the list. I'm looking at it yep. right now. It looks like a small jumbo. Yeah, and then sequoia is his big guitar. So what is the um, the tamarack that you're getting? What are the woods on that one? Panama rosewood. Ooh. With a, I think it's it's a, it's a European spruce. I think it's a Carpathian mm-hmm. um, or something, perhaps. I, I can't remember the exact, um, but it's, uh, yeah. 
So it's a Panama rosewood. It's it's a light colored rosewood. It's not quite as dark as Indian. It has very similar grain um, patterns to Indian rosewood, but uh, uh, and similar. It's maybe not quite as dark uh, as an Indian rosewood, but it's it's an, it's if it's I'm if it's what I'm expecting, I'll be very happy with it. <laughs> Oh, well, you know, the, um, his name came up quite often in some of the guitar, acoustic guitar magazines, mm. and then also Dream Guitars down in Asheville, yes. North Carolina. They, yeah. They've carried his yeah. guitars for when, they, when they can get them. <laughs> they have three of them right now. Oh, do they really? Yeah, yeah. three or four. Now, actually, one is a, the fourth one is, a, is an arch top um, that, he, that he made some years ago. But they've got a couple of new ones, and I think one used one, I mean... They don't go for cheap. I was able to find this one for a steal um, elsewhere, but uh, yeah, his his work is just amazing. And but what he's able to the sound he's able to get is just incredible. So, but you know, there's so many. You know, we are in the golden age of luthier luthery, and uh, there are so many incredible builders out there that I know you probably have a you know a lot. You've always been one to sort of discover those those up and comers. Uh, well, I'm I'm willing to take a chance is is the way I look at it, and it doesn't always work. <laughs> but the um, my my favorite luthier unfortunately passed away at the age of 49, uh, died of a heart attack after a jam his weekly jam session with his buddy. Said he wasn't feeling well and went home and passed away that night. And I still own two of his guitars. I've owned three or four total. Um, and that I, I was getting ready to take it out tonight, and I looked at the the clock, and I went, "Oh, I can't take it out. I've got a <laughs> podcast." So, the who is um, that? I'm curious. What's that? Who, yeah, who's the who's the gentleman? It's, it's a, the last name is Marler, M A R L E R. I don't know mm-hmm. if I played that when I might have played that out one time when we played. Um, mm-hmm. It was all Koa with lots of bling on it. Oh, I think I've seen that. Yep, yep, and the. Um, but anyways, the, the yeah. uh, he's one. There've been a couple others that I've since sold, and uh, I'm in the process now of because you and I off off mic before the show actually started, we're talking about aging, and <laughs> I've realized that that whole wall in the living room that has is lined with the guitar cases, and the one in my office here, studio office has a line of guitar cases that it's probably time to start whittling them down because many of them, <laughs> I love them to death, but I hardly ever play them. And a guitar or any instrument should be played. Absolutely. So I, a couple technical questions for you, uh, guitar related. What uh, string gauges do you use? Uh, 13 to 56. Okay. I use, so those are mediums. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I'll tell you, when Elixir came out with their first coded strings, I thought I had died and gone to heaven. And I'll tell you, and I know a lot of a lot of purists will just their jaws will be dropping and they'll call me a blasphemer. But people like me, I've always had very sweaty and acidic hands. And so I would put a new string set on and on a guitar, and it would sound great for about 20 minutes at best. And then the quality would just go so dull and muffled. And I just absolutely hated it. it just how, how quickly the sound quality of my guitars just would die. So 
when Elixir came out with coded strings. Now there's others and they're, they're great as well. But so I use coded strings. They don't off the, you know, off the, um, out of the package. They don't sound quite as nice as, as uncoded, but I'll tell you, they hold that sound. And so I can enjoy that sound, <laughs> but I do that. I also do that. I chose that gauge because I do a lot of alternate tunings and, um, you know, I'll drop down to C or even, um, B, um, I've even dropped down to a on a couple of songs that I think the, uh, haunting me on my CD, I drop it all the way down to an A, you don't, you, you can't really fret anything there. So it's just an open string and you gotta be careful with it, but having that extra thickness gives intention, gives me a little bit more. I've always been curious now, you know, speaking of alternate tunings, I, I've really been curious about the multi-scale the fan fret mm -hmm. guitars that that have the shorter treble and the you know 26 and a quarter you know, scale length up at the top to allow for that increased tension for alternate tunings but not worrying about that now i still like have my standard scale guitars and yeah that's what i use now the um i purchased one of the eastman um fan mm -hmm. fret guitars and oh, if it was good um like many bulk builders, um, and they mm -hmm. do an excellent job, by the way. They used to, yeah, they their, their, their incoming warehouse used to be, <clears throat> excuse me, in the, let's see, where was it? Gaithersburg, maybe? I think, oh, oh no, Germantown. It was, in, it was in Germantown. I went down and chatted with the fellow. He was a British fellow uh, at that time, and now I think they're on the West Coast. They moved out there. But the mm -hmm. um, they make wonderful guitars, very affordable this particular one not so much yeah. but it's um i was amazed at how easy it was to fret because i was thinking gosh i'm gonna have to turn my hand but it actually more it ergonomic actually, it, it's more ergonomic than a regular fretboard is um and i was looking forward to that because i do tune down to d now i used to tune to um um, um e flat and now I, because my voice has changed oh. over the years. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, gosh, that fan fret would be wonderful because that low E string, now I can drop it down and we'll get floppy. What I realized on that particular one, they kept the scale length on the bass string the same, 25 and a half. They just shortened. Oh, shortened the treble. You know, and, <laughs> no. <laughs> and when I looked into ones that actually did what I needed it to do, I couldn't afford them. So, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No. They, in fact, that's one of the Blanchards that they have that, uh, at Dream Guitars right now, it's a twenty thousand dollar fan fret Sequoia. It's just an absolute stunning instrument. I'm sure it just mm. plays amazing, but that's a little bit beyond my <laughs> government salary. <laughs> well, you know, I, I was listening to um, Cool Water and then Cole Alley. Both start off with this really nice, and they've got a wonderful low end. Um, which guitar were you using when you when you recorded that CD? Because that was back in early two thousands. Yeah, I was actually recording. I'm not sure which songs, but I had just acquired my Ryan, mm -hmm. and um, and so I think only a few, couple of songs are with that. I was uh, much of that CD was recorded with the Breedlove oh. uh, C25. Yeah, and they're very you know they're very rich and warm sounding guitars. They're a very warm bass response and sparkly. Um, but I that was a gigging guitar for me up in Boston. Um, and so I played that with that for some years. But uh, well, speaking, so that's, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, speaking of Boston, you told me the story once because you used to busk 
in yeah. Boston, and you told me the story the first time you went out to the uh, one of the tea stations. What happened? Oh, goodness. So I was living in um, Somerville, up near Tufts University. And so I, would, uh, I was going to school, and Davis Square was the, um, the nearest on the red line, nearest stop for me. And I had seen buskers there, and they allowed they allow busking in the in the tea stations. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to go give it a shot. I had a I had a an amp, and they actually have um, an outlet um, that you could plug into at Davis Square. Not in all the stations, but in Davis Square they had an outlet that I could plug into. So I brought my mic and my amp down there one one day. It was after the morning commute, I just wanted to get my feet wet. And, you know, it was, it was great. Uh, I could work on songs cause you have a rotating audience. <laughs> I could work on my performance skills. And, um, I also found out that, uh, you know, people liked it. They, I would get people to stay down there and miss a few trains to listen. And, and that was, that was heartening. And, you know, as that continued, this was when I was in graduate school. And so I started, you know, on the days I didn't have any class, I'd go down and catch the, the morning commute or the evening commute or whatever. And that's, I started getting gigs. Club owners would come by and say, hey, great. Do you want to play at my, my uh, cafe? Do you want to play at my pub or whatever? So I had some colorful venues, got to play at the Passim, um, that legendary spot up there. Um, but, uh, it was it was the it was a great place to sort of cut my teeth in performing and learning a little bit of stage banter and just crowd working the crowds and trying to trying to figure out what what performing and, and playing in front of people is all about because that was now, I had not done it. Now was there any competition between performers in the T stations? Absolutely, absolutely. The, there was there's a whole subculture of you know I'm an I'm an anthropologist by training, <laughs> which I would I could have written I could write a book on the subculture of busking in Boston. It was really fascinating. Is there um, a hierarchy like? Do you have to kind of get in line and work your way up, or how does that work? Not so much. Not so much. That it was a little bit more egalitarian. It was more of like a first come first serve. But um, so most uh, most stations would be first come first serve. There were two coveted stations. That was Harvard Square and Park in, uh, in the center of Boston. And those uh, venues at the time um, had, well, maybe not Park, but Harvard Square definitely had um, a, a tradition that you went down there at like 6 a.m. for coin toss. Oh, really? Wow. And there were, there were three, there were three slots throughout the day and they were, they were six, like six hour slots. And so you'd have raw fingers by the end of the day if you didn't take breaks, but um, you'd go down there and sometimes there would be, you know, you know, just two or three people and just sort of work it out um, say, Hey, yeah, well, I'll take this or maybe flip for the most coveted, you know, morning or evening commute. Um, uh, but sometimes there were like, you know, five, six, seven people down there and you have, and so we do kind of this, um, coin toss where it's sort of diminishing down to the final three. And that was how we did it. And it became problematic, obviously, when if you had the afternoon, you had the second slot and the person who was playing the morning slot, maybe they left early. And if they leave early, if it's open, 
the tradition was if any slot is open anywhere, you can just move in and set up, set up shop. Um, and so that happened, that always would, you know, wouldn't always, but it, enough, it, it would happen that some, the person that was supposed to hold the slot until you got there left early for whatever reason. And then someone moved in and you're like, you brought all your gear down there. You've been hauling, you know, taxis here, whatever to get there. And then all of a sudden someone's in your slot and that would, that would create some problems. But, uh, for more, for the most part, it worked out. You, you had to get your, uh, permit it you know, cost like, you know, 30 bucks for the year or something to play in the, in the T's in the, in the Metro pro- or the, you know, the, uh, T properties and on their, in their stations. But, uh, and what, sometimes, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to ask, was it profitable? At times very, I did that. Um, I, that was my job after I had, I had completed my degree. I was there. It was a two year degree program. I had met Whitney, my now wife of 20 plus years. We had met in Boston and she was a year behind me in her graduate work. So while I was still up there kind of waiting for her to complete her degree, I just busked and I would do it a lot. Um, but I could come, you know, after a, a, you know, four to six hour slot, I could come home with a few hundred dollars. Um, and, uh, you know, that was on a good, on a good day. I, you know, I'd have you know, three, three plus hundred dollars on a slow day. It would be, you know, maybe like more like 50 to one or 100, but, you know, we'd have, we'd have, and this was 20 years ago. So, um, but it, it was great because, you know, I always in, in some of the stations at the time frames, I'd have my, um, patrons who knew that I'd be down there and they'd come in and drop a 20 in or drop a 10 in or, um, and I remember joking one time, um, lunch hour, my, my, uh, Whitney would come down to listen and, and I, I'd plant her with a few, you know, fivers <laughs> because <laughs> I'll tell you, I'll tell you, there's a lot of group think involved when you're playing for tips. And so if someone drops money in, there's, you know, more other people are likely to, to follow suit or, and there's always this other thing that. If you have a lot of money in your case, people will that that can be a turnoff because people will think that you're you know they they don't need this guy's making bank doesn't need my my tips, but if you don't have enough money in the case, it's just a little bit, then people will think well maybe he's not that good. <laughs> <laughs> so it was as a as a as a performer down there, I I. I monitor that case and how much money was in there and every now and then i'd have to thin it out and put pocket some put it away in my bag or in my pocket or whatever so it didn't look like i was making too much but at the same time not making too little <laughs> it was really interesting a lot of fun a lot of fun um, well you know it the i've known a few people you're the only person I, i'm pretty sure you're the only person i know who's played in what I would call a premier busker spot. I mean, you see people downtown Frederick sometimes out on the corner. Um, and first Saturday, they always have performers out year round between four and 9 PM, but that's a little bit different. They're, they're, they're performing rather than busking, which is uh, busking is just like you said, you set up and you, as people walk by the, um, but what a, a neat way to, as you said, try out new songs or, Gosh, I didn't like the way it came out. I'll just wait 10 minutes and do the same song over again. <laughs> yeah. 
Yep. No, I, I, I look at that as a, as a great way to start performing um, for me. Well, you know, going back, going and talking about your writing style, because your songs, many of them, especially Jacques Mathurin and the, the new one, uh, Patty McFarlane, they're story songs. They're either about a character um, telling a, at least a story of a part of their life, sometimes the whole, the whole life. Is that what you set out to do when you write, or is it strictly you're noodling and you, you come up with something you can tell you like, and then all of a sudden you blurt out a line and then you, you have to start from scratch there? How do you go about writing? So um, I am one who usually writes music first. Um, I sometimes, you know, in the back of my head, I have ideas about themes or, or whatever, you, you know, it's for lyrics. Um, but that haven't yet been put to music, but they're only ideas. I very rarely write lyrics, um, before the music. And so I feel I've always been a guitarist and I just sit down and, and that's, that's what I do. And so the, the, you know, the motifs start to come out, the licks start to come out and the progressions start to come out. And then it's, how do I feel about this? You know, what is the, what is the, um, sense you know on rare occasion cool water was one of or not cool water but coal alley was one of those that just came out in a matter of about a half hour mm. um <clears throat> that was one of those rare moments where the music and the lyrics came out i was dating a girl up in this was up in boston i was dating a girl and she had you know re told me of this you know experience she had as a as a um as a waitress and, and, you know, the getting dumped by her boyfriend the day before and, and just this, the pain. And, and, and she told me that, you know, the back alley of this cafe or restaurant where she was working, um, was, it was called Cole Alley. And, and she just, you know, described this experience. And so that was the impetus for that song, but it, the music and the words just immediately came together sitting in a park in, in uh, at the corner of Tufts University under a tree. That's where I wrote that song. <laughs> um, but that was unusual. Usually I come up with the, the music or a basic progression and I kind of gauge how that makes me feel. And there, and I might be able to reach back into um, feelings or themes or stories. Um, with Jack Mathurin, I had recent, I had read um, the Louis L'Amour book called The Walking Drum. And mm -hmm. that's what the character is based on. Um, I think it was uh, Mathurin Kerbouchard is the, is the character's name. I changed it a little bit to Jacques Mathurin. But uh, I thought the, the, the picking to me was very adventuresome. And it was, it was sort of one of these epic tales types of tunes, kind of like the... <clears throat> Kind of like Richard Thompson's Vincent Black Lightning, there was a story and an energy behind it, and uh, and so um, that's that's how a lot of my songs come about is either images that I have in my head or themes or or stories like this. And the Patty McFarlane was um, was one of those uh, rare occurrences for me I've, uh, of co-writing. Um, a gentleman that I mentioned before the podcast, uh, a friend of a friend who was uh, a writer of lyrics and poetry, um, spends a lot of time in Ireland and writing sort of Celtic flavored um, historical 
um, limericks or, you know, poems or things like that. And I've worked with him on a couple of songs and, and he sent that to me and I had been, and I, that was one where the lyrics I had in front of me and I started noodling with my baritone guitar. And that was a lot of fun. I, I used the drop tuning in my baritone guitar, which is already really low. And it was really fun because I'd start out, I start out playing just the, you know, the, the first three or four strings um, to sort of hide the, the breadth of the baritone until the first verse comes in. And then you hear this deep growling bass note and you think, where did that come from? <laughs> but, uh, but that was, that song was written to the lyrics. And, uh, and then I had to tweak uh, a little bit here and there to make sure it fit. But uh, um, so Predominantly, to answer your question, I guess coming around about is most of my songs are just because I've 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 got a lot of different tunes. Like I said, you know, like I said, I can put my iPhone or my iPad in front of me if, if I hear something I like and just record it. I have a lot of those, um, and then some of them sort of build out and and continue to do that, and then I start matching the emotions or the feelings or the stories or the themes with that, and then then it comes. You know, with songwriting, though, there's a lot of <laughs> there's, you know, a lot of bad or mediocre songs that you have to muddle through before you get to some good ones. And, you know, there's a couple, you know, there's a few tunes that I really am proud of that uh, on on uh, Cool Water. Um, there's some that are like, yeah, that's like, I could really use some tweaking on that. <laughs> but uh, or just leave it alone. Say, OK, well enough. Write another song. Well, and, speaking uh, of writing another song, yeah. do you? How many songs do you have that that you think are up to your standard of being able to record? Yeah. Do you have a backlog that, like, if you decided tomorrow that you were going to call up, you know, um, the engineer and say, "Hey, look, I want to book some time. I'd like to put eight songs on a on a on a small CD." I think I have. I think I have about eight um, that I would think are well crafted you know, um, well-crafted songs, um, some better than others, but, uh, some with better hooks, <laughs> some that, you know, and that's the thing the, the about being an independent, you know, songwriter, singer, songwriters, you don't, I mean, you want to be successful at it, right. Especially if that's your, your job. Now, you know, you and I have other careers that pay the bills and the mortgages. And so we have a little bit more flexibility, um, but still, we want to be successful with uh, and write songs that people enjoy, and yeah, they'll, they'll buy, or they'll stream. Um, but the nice thing about you know sort of where we are is that I don't have to. You know, sometimes I just want to write what I want to write mm -hmm. and what comes out, and knowing that you know maybe not you know, maybe a lot of people are not going to feel this song like I feel it, but this is how I want to write it. It may be beyond the radio playability of a three-minute song, <laughs> maybe. You know, Jacques Matorin is not is not a short song, and a lot of my songs were um, a little bit longer than they theoretically should be for radio play or just for you know a normal Billboard type of chart. But you know, that's what we get to do. We get to make our own make our own music, and let's see what people like. And maybe they'll like some that we don't. Maybe we'll like some that they don't. <laughs> well, you know, speaking of cool water. And you mentioned earlier in our discussion that you, when you first got the boxes of CDs, and that's when you sent one to uh, Janice Ian. Do you have any of that CD still around? 
I do. If the so. bane of my wife. <laughs> 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 We've got some stuffed up in the attic. Uh, but I sold. I sold most of them. I sold most of them over the years. But there, I still have. You know, probably. I think I did a. Oh, what I I think I did a round of five to seven hundred CDs that first time, and I've sold probably eighty percent of those mm-hmm. over the years, but nothing over <laughs> the last. In 10 years. Well, if someone, because what I'm going to ask you, your permission, because we don't have time during uh, an hour podcast to play every song on a CD. Mm. And yours are so good. It's such a great CD. Would you give me permission to do a, a follow-up podcast where I play maybe not every song on the CD, but probably like two-thirds of them? Of course. I will I will do that then. But if someone wants to purchase one of your cool waters, how should they get in touch with you? Oh, goodness. So, Todd, you were mentioning that you were wondering where I was. And I had once had a website, Mark Austin Guitar. And then I realized that dealing with taxes is a self-employed. <laughs> 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 oh. So I, I dissolved that website some you know, 10 plus years ago. Um <clears throat> But uh, I am on Facebook. If you if you uh, contact me through Facebook, that's um, it's uh, you know, Mark Austin. I'm located here in Alexandria, Virginia. Um, and if and I think if you you know it's it's still on all the streaming sites because you know the CD company that many of us use here um, uh, push the digital field. And so it's on Amazon, it's on Spotify, it's on, you know, all the, all the download sites. Um, you can find my, my music, but if you actually are a diehard and you want a, a full high res CD, you can contact me there. Just Mark Austin on Facebook and you'll probably start uh, whittling down once you get the, there's only a, one or two of us in Alexandria. Well, hopefully you sell 80% of the 20% you have left. That'd be great. <laughs> I mean, I have two of Cool Water. Why I have two, I have no idea. But I have goodness two. gracious! I I feel badly for you. <laughs> no, not at all. And what has happened over the years is I've been, you know, when I when I was you and I were performing before fifteen twenty years ago, and we were doing the Sunday night all folked up at the Frederick Coffee Company, and then I started <laughs> doing the open mics and things like that, and the Monday Night Brewers Alley Songwriter Showcase series. I would be purchasing CDs anytime someone came in, especially from out of town. And I have, gosh, hundreds and oh, hundreds of them. Collection. And I've got, you know, a whole bookshelf down in the basement that I can't really get to because there's too much stuff in front of it. But somehow I ended up with two. And I don't know if that's <laughs> because I could not find one at one point in time. And I was able to come up with another one, maybe, maybe online. I don't know. Well, hey, I've got some more to add to that. If you ever feel you need some companionship, don't let those good. two feel a little lonely. You know, my, my kitchen table is missing a few coasters. I think I could do <laughs> There you go. <laughs> or a little few kitchen prisms yeah. string up in there. Yeah. So what do, you, how do you, what do you see for the future musically for Mark Austin? What's your, what's your goal if you have one? Um, I, I actually, well, first, first of all, you mentioned... Um, you know, what sort of catalog do I have? Um, I do want, I do want to record some more of the stuff that is, that I don't have recorded or I just very, very, you know, 
haphazardly recorded on my iPad type of thing. I'd like to get, uh, and maybe, you know, I've, <clears throat> I think I've, you know, home studios, I think I might do that. It's a little bit more economical <laughs> than getting back into the studio, especially when I got to send a kid to college soon. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do want to, I do want to record some of this stuff. I am continuing, like I mentioned, I'm continuing to try and refine my um, knowledge and of the, and ability to play the fretboard. And I've been uh, absolutely enjoying rediscovering the guitar and um, learning what I never knew or at least, or, and even learning what I knew, but I didn't know what it was. Does mm-hmm. that, that make sense? I it knew does. how to play, but didn't know what, what it was. And just adding new colors um, the, with, you know, with the jazz um, background and listening to a lot of the classics and the standards and things like that and trying to play them. You know, my fingers have gotten faster. My chords have become more complex and more colorful. And so I would, you know, I, I'm just having a great time with that. And there's a lot of songs that I think are out there. Um, but you also mentioned, you know, what are my goals? I am one of the reasons I, I was thinking of you when you emailed me that day is I've really been wanting to get back, realizing how much I miss performing and just, you know, the, the, not just, not just the feedback, um, of being on stage and hearing people enjoy it and, and uh, encouragement, but just, the I, re- I took my, um, my family out this is a really quick aside but there's a point here i took my family out to uh uh my folks in utah and we watched we got to see the piano guys i don't know if you're familiar with them they're sort of a youtube phenomenon that have been become worldwide it's a piano and a cellist and and they're from that area southern utah we got to hear them my son is a huge fan well during the concert the the cellist sort starts talking to the audience and he talked about his beginning with uh, an instrument and encouraging kids and anyone in the audience who's learning a new instrument. And he said, you know, at some point that all those drills and all that pain and, and suffering of trying to understand the music said, I promise you, if you stick with it, one day when you sit down with your instrument and you start playing, you will just fly. You will be soaring. And that struck my son, who we've been encouraging with the bass clarinet, but that just almost brought me to tears when I heard that and just felt that because that is that is what I feel when I'm playing the guitar. And, you know, when I'm in my home studio and I have my my sound system on or an enveloped by that or even just plugged into my headphones or just <clears throat> sitting in my bathroom with the acoustic you know, resonance of the tiles and stuff. And I'm just playing my acoustic guitar. It's, it's like flying and you just lose yourself in the most incredible moments. And that's what I love about it. And I will always continue to do that. So. Well, I look forward to one hearing you play one of the arch tops. I love jazz guitar and I, I, I have, two or three rudimentary jazz chords that I play, and I don't play them accurately, but they fit into the songs that I use them for. But I love, and I like watching old cowboy movies, and I love Louis L'Amour books. The, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of the old 1930s cowboy movies, the Roy Rogers and the ones before oh, yeah. that, they always had 
fellas, cowhands, who would strike up a song. And if you watch the guitar player in those old groups, they're playing jazz chords. They're just all over the fretboard. You don't really notice it because you're there. You know they're singing about a you know the lonely cow or something like that. But the, the if you watch guitar players' hands on the movies where they're actually performing and not just you know faking it, there it's amazing how good of a guitarist those fellows are. But oh, I look yeah. I look forward to you um, hearing you play the arch top and and maybe doing some of that jazz stuff. And I look forward to seeing you in person sometime in the near future. That would be just so much fun. We'll make that happen. Yeah. And I do want to thank you again for joining me. We didn't get a chance to play Patty McFarlane or Jacques Mathurin. Uh, Once you and I finish with our conversation, the folks are going to listen to Cole Alley. One, because I just, it was a tough, it was a toss up between Cool Water and Cole Alley as to which song I would start the podcast with. And I thought, well, I'll just end with the other one. And I flipped a coin and Cool Water, because that's the title of the CD. I figured that would be a good one to lead into. But So, again, I look forward to seeing you sometime soon. And, again, thanks so much. And please, as I mentioned, off mic, um, tell Whitney I, I send my best. Absolutely. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, good Mark. Time. All right. Have a good rest of the evening. Well, that was Mark Austin, great guitar player, great singer. He writes really, really cool songs, and I look forward to uh, seeing him, especially with that arch top and the jazz chords. But we're going to end the show with his song, Cole Alley. of your tear-stained cheek And streetlights Cast your lonely shadow on the rain-slick streets As daylight Daylight fades away Firelight once set the room ablaze Where you kindled his embrace But now it's over And candlelight Flickers in the hall Your lonely shadow on the wall Tells you it's over As daylight Daylight fades away It fades away And the tears pour down Like the summer rains But keep on falling So free 
The Wisp Me Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series is produced by Todd, middle initial C. Walker. Yes, that's right, it's me at the Wisp Me Mop Music Studio in Frederick, Maryland. All music on the podcast is played by permission from the artist. If you're enjoying the series, please feel free to share the link with family, friends, business associates, whoever you'd like. It is wispymopmusic.podbean.com, and podbean is spelled P-O-D-B-E-A-N, wispymopmusic.podbean.com, or you can find the show on either iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.